The Secret Garden of the Soul, Part 2 The study of Kabbalah has generally been arranged by different authors under several headings. McGregor Mathers, in his introduction to the Kabbalah Unveiled, a translation of parts of Van Rosenroth's Kabbalah Dinudata, arranged the Kabbalah under the following four headings. First, Practical Kabbalah, Second, Literal Kabbalah, third unwritten Kabbalah, and fourth dogmatic Kabbalah. The first deals with ceremonial and talismanic magic. The second deals with the use of language in different systems of codification and interpretation. Unwritten Kabbalah deals with the oral teachings that are never entrusted to writing. The fourth, dogmatic Kabbalah, is essentially concerned with Kabbalistic doctrine. Alternatively, in his book The Kabbalah, William Wynne Westcott arranges the categories in much the same way as Mathers, but uses two instead of four categories, these being Practical Kabbalah and Dogmatic Kabbalah. Under the heading of Practical Kabbalah, he includes all that Mathers incorporates in the Practical and Literal Kabbalah, and his category of Dogmatic Kabbalah embraces the same doctrinal aspects of unwritten theoretical Kabbalah as defined by Mathers. Similarly, Isaac Myers states in his book Kabbalah that the Kabbalists of old divided their system into two main divisions, the first being the theoretic, which he divides into three branches, symbolic, speculative and dogmatic, and the second being the practical, which treats of angels and demons, their hierarchies and divisions, and their departments in paradise and hell along with the transmigration of souls and other such information. Arthur Edward Waite, however, in his book The Holy Kabbalah, places the study of Kabbalah under four headings. First is the administrative tradition, second the magical tradition, third the practical Kabbalah, and fourth the philosophical tradition. The first, the administrative, is concerned with the Talmud, the second, the magical tradition, is concerned with the divine names of God. The third, practical Kabbalah, he describes as being concerned with the material Mathers associates with literal Kabbalah. The fourth, the philosophical tradition, which is concerned with the teachings embodied in the Sefer Yetzirah and the Zohar. This last category, Waite portrays as the essential Kabbalah, which he describes as being concerned with two fundamental doctrines the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of the throne or chariot. In his book Sefer Zira, Arya Kaplan states that Kabbalah may be divided into the following three categories. The first, theoretical, is concerned with the study of the Zohar. The second, the meditative, is concerned with the use of divine names and the permutations of letters to attain heightened states of consciousness. The third, the magical, is concerned with the use of signs, incantations, and the use of the divine names of God. These authorities, and there are many more, provide us with sufficient information to identify a basic pattern for the study of the Kabbalah. It is not difficult to perceive in the classifications outlined above that whichever scheme one uses, the work will fall inevitably into two groups. The first is educational, the second practical, 
The theoretical aspect of this work lies in the study of scripture, commentaries upon it, Kabbalistic texts and related material. The practical aspect of this work lies within the dynamic psycho-spiritual processes that are implicit within these texts. Both are subject to further division and both are dependent upon the scriptures. Although there is some preparatory work that is accessible to anyone, there is no real beginning other than the study of the scriptures, especially the mosaic books that compose the Pentateuch, which consists of the first five books of the Bible. Some might find this idea rather off-putting, but it should be borne in mind that the great Kabbalistic texts, the Sefer Yetzirah, the Sefer HaBahir, and the Sefer HaZohar, are all concerned with the revelation of an inner teaching embedded in the scriptures. It is this inner teaching, or tradition, that forms the essence of Kabbalah, and upon which the practical side of Kabbalah rests. Understand this one thing, and all of the tools, methods and systems of the Kabbalists, both ancient and modern, will then make sense. Furthermore, it is impossible to understand that the Kabbalah is not a single unique and uniform system and philosophy shared by all Kabbalists. There have been, and there continue to be, different schools of thought concerning the interpretation and application of the principles involved. Some of the early exponents were more philosophically inclined towards a rational interpretation, whilst others, including the authors of the Zoharic literature, favoured a mythological approach. The literal interpretation of scripture is undoubtedly valuable and should not be set aside as one seeks to understand the inner teaching. For the literal interpretation teaches us a way of living in harmony with God's law with each other and with our conscience. It contains a code for living a wholesome life that constitutes the platform for the more subtle work of the spirit. Sadly, rather than seeking the spiritual treasures hidden within it, many people have preferred to seek codes and ciphers that might reveal material treasures and knowledge of great secrets. And doubtless, many more will lead themselves up the same garden path in search of the same. Yet there is more. There are ciphers, which are very difficult to crack, there are treasures far greater than fame or fortune, and there are secrets. The question is, how does one find them, and how does one understand them? The simple truth is that the answer lies where you direct your attention. A famous Kabbalist of the 17th century, Menasseh ben Israel, compared the mosaic books to the body of a human being, the commentaries on them, such as the Zohar, he likened to the soul, and the Kabbalah he compared to the spirit of the soul. Ignorant people, he taught, may study the first, the learned may study the second, but the wise, he said, direct their contemplation to the third. Another Kabbalist, Nicholas Dolira, a Christian scholar who died in 1340, recognized four modes of interpretation, literal, allegorical, moral, anagogic, or mystical. Moses de Leon, who died in 1305, taught that the word pardes, which means garden or paradise, is a cipher, concealing an esoteric understanding of existence based upon four levels of interpretation. He taught that each consonant of the word pardes denotes one of four levels of interpretation and meaning. Thus P stands for the literal meaning, R stands for the allegorical meaning in the moral sense, 
D stands for the allegorical in a symbolic sense, and S stands for the mystical meaning. Arthur Edward Waite described the same thing in this way. P equals the literal, R the symbolic, D the allegorical, and finally S equals the mystical sense. This method of interpretation applies particularly to the life of the soul on its path of spiritual regeneration, not to political or historical secrets and intrigues. On this path, the Torah, that is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, play an essential role and must be interpreted according to this method, which was likened by Moses de Leon to a nut with a shell of literal meaning on the outside and an essence or mystical meaning within. To the Kabbalist, the Torah does not consist simply of meaningful ancient records and teachings arranged into chapters and sections. Rather, it is understood to be the living incarnation of divine wisdom, the symbolic embodiment of the creative powers of God, with the physical Torah being a representation of that wisdom. Each letter, each word, representing a spiritual dimension of life, open to the righteous soul, and as such is capable of being a vehicle of almost infinite knowledge. With all this in mind, all of the great Kabbalists have accepted as a given that the study of the scriptures is absolutely necessary for spiritual progress. However, merely reading such texts does not make a Kabbalist. The practical work of a Kabbalist involves a serious and prolonged engagement with the interior life of the soul, especially in its relationship with God, and it is to this interior life that the Kabbalah is dedicated. Therefore, it is not possible for an atheist or an agnostic to become a Kabbalist, nor should such a person attempt such work, for there are dangerous hazards involved, not only for the impious, but also for the curious and the foolhardy. Furthermore, any who think that the magical or meditative categories are all that they need fail to understand that the coarseness of human consciousness, however refined we may think it to be, is insufficient for any real progress in this work. In addition, without spiritual assistance, they will fail to comprehend the essential nature and chemistry of their consciousness which is the main theatre of their work. Thus, they will be doomed to failure because the work of the Kabbalist is the work of spiritual regeneration, which is not primarily a process of elevating consciousness to higher worlds, but the transformation of the very essence of consciousness itself. The mystical doctrines of the Kabbalah, like those of the mystical doctrines of all culture, have had to address the problem of reconciling the absolute nature of God with the imperfect nature of creation. If God is so absolutely singular, self-contained and perfect, then how does an apparently imperfect creation come into existence? How does the infinite bring the finite into being? And as a finite being, how does humanity, in its imperfect state, have any comprehension of God? In response to these questions, and to demonstrate the separateness of creation from God, the early Kabbalists proposed three stages or states prior to the act of creation. The first stage is based upon the premise that before the beginning, before the creation of the universe, there was nothing, no space, no time, no energy, no dimension, no activity, no purpose or existence, and in fact nothing. 
This absolute the Kabbalist called Ain, which means nothingness. It's a term that signifies the Godhead in its most impenetrable guise. It is therefore a symbol of a mystery concerning the nature of the source of existence, a mystery that is completely beyond the grasp of human intellect. From this mystery of nothingness, early Kabbalists proposed the presence of a hidden something, an infinite Godhead. The Kabbalist calls this hidden Godhead Ein Sof, the boundless, a term which represents an invisible and undifferentiated Godhead, in whom absolute potential and perfection consists. When referred to as a divine entity, however mysterious, it is more often referred to as Ein Sof, and I shall use the latter term from this point on. The teaching of the Kabbalah maintains that Ensof does not reveal itself in any finite way. It's not even accessible to the innermost thought of the contemplative. Yet from this divine Godhead, who is the first cause, the one of Plotinus, the entire creation emanates. Concerning the emanation of creation, they taught that Ensof contracted a space within itself and filled it with an infinite and boundless light. This infinite ocean of divine light, the Kabbalists called Ein Sofer, infinite light. Kabbalistic doctrine maintains that Ein Sof concentrated this light into a central point, a point of infinite potential, a point that is known as Kether, and from which emanates the power and potencies by which the universe is brought into existence and in which the hidden Godhead is revealed as the creator of the universe and controller of its destiny. These potencies and powers, including Kether, are known as the Ten Sephirot, the fundamental components of the Tree of Life. Kether is then the title by which the first expression of the divine will as positive existence is known. It is unity itself, and as such is incomparable, for there is nothing with which to compare it. It is the source of all things, the very wellspring of life and existence, ever the seed, ever the source, the focal point of life itself. It is the first point, the first cause of existence, and as such it is the antecedent of duality and all that duality implies. Kether is effectively synonymous with Ensof, and strictly speaking, it is impossible to refer directly to it. All that is available is what may be inferred, thus, if Kether is the antecedent of duality, it must be without form. Being incorporeal, it must be without body, and being beyond time, it transcends generation and gender. Furthermore, it is also taught that Kether, as unity, is present in all created things, animate and inanimate, in the sense that it is the substrate of existence. Thus it is said that the name that applies to Kether is I am that I am. It is from Kether that the entire creation, traditionally represented as a tree, springs forth. This tree is diagrammatically portrayed as a geometrical arrangement of ten spheres or sephirot, and will be the subject of the next part of the secret garden of the soul. Thank you.